0: Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. If you've listened here before, you'll know that the research doesn't support the idea that extinction sleep training methods, like crying it out or controlled crying, actually improve our infant sleep, or our children's for that matter. Despite parents reporting improvements, when we look at objective measures of sleep, the sleep of children pre and post sleep training is actually no different. Now, many of us see this as a bit damning for sleep training, but what cannot be denied is that sleep training may improve parents' sleep. And in cultures where sleep is hard to come by and expectations for parents are through the roof, this is not something to be overlooked. This week, I was able to chat with Dr. Levita D'Souza about this very tension. How do we balance our infant's need for proximity and support, as well as their biologically normal sleep rhythms with a parent's need for more sleep in an unsupportive culture. We both know that only if we can start to address this issue will we be able to move away from our sleep training culture. I hope this conversation helps move this issue forward. Well, I am so pleased to welcome back today Dr. Levita D'Souza. If you have not heard any episode with her yet, then clearly you need to go back and check them out because I don't even know what number this is now. Is this four? Four, I think, yes. Four, I think. She is my regular. She is my my equivalent of a co-host, I guess, because whenever we come up, this is, we talk about all these issues that come up. If you don't know her already, she is a counseling psychologist and researcher at Monash University in Australia. She focuses on attachment. And so this is, I mean, such a value to our conversations. And today we're going to talk about balancing parent and child needs when it comes to child sleep. Because I think, as we all know, one of the biggest struggles that many parents have is the fact that they want to sleep and their baby, toddler, possibly preschooler, uh, and wants to wake. Um, So I think this is one of those issues that feels like we need to kind of discuss the tension here and not only why this happens in our culture, but also what are some of the things we might be able to do for it as we discuss. Is that fair? That is fair. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's start. I want to talk first about the fact that because I think this all comes down to one of the issues that I know Levita and I hear a lot from from families, from parents is this idea of sleep training. What that is seen as the cure all for what people perceive to being an infant sleep problem. Now, again, going back to the fact that I've had her on before, we have a whole episode on what is an infant sleep problem. And waking, just little side note here, is not it. Uh, But that is... (laughs) That's the episode in two seconds. We went into more detail there, but that's the take-home. So, you know, the question becomes people see that sleep training is supposed to somehow improve their child's sleep. And we've also covered elsewhere that it doesn't, that the actual evidence that we have, and we're going to talk about it a bit here, um, does not show that sleep training actually improves infant sleep, which leads to the conclusion that sleep training is not for the child. It is not improving outcomes for your baby, toddler, Preschooler, etc. The question is, who? What is it changing? And it seems to be, it's changing things for the parent. It may enable a parent to sleep more. So, I want to to get to the fact that I mean, I think we'll both settle on the fact that probably we're not. We don't want to dismiss parents' needs. There is no, there's there's nothing wrong with needing more sleep, right? No.
1: Um, And to your point with sleep training, I think the little bit improvement that it shows, seemingly improvement that it shows, is more around the fact that the child doesn't signal as much. Thank you. Which then means that the parents are not aware that the child is not signaling. It doesn't mean that they're not, um, it doesn't mean that they're not changing sleep, they're not changing sleep. It just means that the child's waking up, but is not signaling. And that's seen to be a good thing because it means it's not interrupting the parent's sleep.
0: And that's really important. And I'm sorry, I should have specified that. So when we talk about not changing infant sleep, I know many people will listen, say, but I know all my friends that said they did it and then their kid was sleeping through and it's not a problem. And I will say that no one I know who has claimed that has sat beside their their infants crib all night and watched them staying awake to know that there were no periods of arousals or wakings. And so what we're looking at is data on. Actigraphy, which is a measure of movements and whatnot in sleep, which is predominantly used. And there's only a handful of studies that have really looked at pre sleep training actigraphy and post sleep training Mm. actigraphy. Mm. And none of them show that that actigraphy data changes. But what we do see is that the parent report of sleep changes. So that's why Levita's is saying that you're getting a change in the parental perception of sleep, but we're not seeing an actual change in sleep. So, so many of the early studies that were done really focused on that parental perception, which is why we have this idea that sleep training is quote unquote evidence-based, that it does change infant sleep.
1: That's right. And so then taking to your point, it is about the parent not waking up, which means it's then serving the parents' needs. And that's not to say not signaling is necessarily a bad thing. Some children are okay not to signal if their temperament is one that doesn't require that sort of close comfort or connection or um, just proximity to go back to sleep. But that's not the case with most of the kids, as we will see that uh typically, I think the research says 70% continue to signal even after 12 months of age. So that's not unusual at all, um, if that many children are signaling.
0: Exactly. And before we get into kind of this parenting, this dichotomy, this tension between everything, cool. I, I want to clarify, and I think you, I, I'd love your your take as a clinician, in a sense, is it's okay to want to sleep as a parent I think we've kind of demon I always feel concerned because so much of the discussion seems to be that you shouldn't want your sleep you should just accept the lack of sleep as part and parcel of everything but I think it's a very human thing to want to sleep
1: of course how on earth are you going to function if you don't sleep um I mean apart from being clinicians we're mom's ourselves, you know, I've got two young ones, and so I know how important sleep is. Um, I have a joke with my daughter that if I'm not sleeping enough, I'm the Shrek, because I will, <laughs> you know, the range. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, sleep is um, important, and so we're not demonising parents for wanting to sleep more, and therefore thinking that sleep training is the only way to get more sleep. Um that's where the issue comes in because then we're prioritizing um one need over the other which is the infant's need might be to wake up to signal to seek comfort to seek proximity to seek breast milk feeding whatever that is and then it's the parent's need for uninterrupted sleep and that's where the tension lies
0: and that's exactly. And I think I want to add to this a cultural layer. And I've talked about this with other people. I had Dr. Cecilia Tomorion, Dr. Helen Ball. We've talked about these issues. But I think we have to start with the premise that we don't live in a supportive culture. We do not live in a culture that supports parents in general. And certainly not in the, the prenatal or prenatal. Well, not in the prenatal period either, but also not in the postnatal mm-hmm. period where you are tired you're exhausted your baby wakes a lot and the effects of that lack of support can you speak to those because you will have seen with families how that can impact your mental health your decision making everything like that
1: sure yes so when parents aren't supported i think we firstly we want men to be you know raise children in um isolation. We were never meant to raise children without a village. And so when you have one parent solely responsible for meeting all the needs of the child, um, you're depleted. You're not just taking care of this baby but you're also recovering from what can be quite um, a life-changing event for you not just physically but also emotionally and psychologically a lot of things happen within the mother and father as they're preparing themselves to transition to this um, phase and part of that psychic reorganization is they're also then looking at Um, they're evaluating their internal working models and by by that I mean they're evaluating how they want to parent and in doing so they're reflecting back on their own parenting experiences as well and so this is a very vulnerable time where a lot of other um, issues can be drawn into the forefront of the parent's mind and now um, when they're not nurtured. This can really be quite a difficult transition in some ways and then Add the layer of going back to work early or having to, uh, you know, do everything around the house while you're nursing the toddler or the baby and caring for a toddler. It puts a lot of psychological demand. And of course, the parents are going, I just need my sleep. If I just had that a few hours more, I'd be able to function better. So while I see the logic in that, the tension is with. How do we effectively then support this parent to be the kind of parent and transition to parenthood while supporting the child's and infant's developing needs?
0: This reminds me so much of an anecdote I heard Dr. Meredith Small given a talk once, and it was all about one of her graduate students went to live with an indigenous group and I believe it was the Mohawk tribe, but I don't want to be quoted on that. I might be wrong there. And she shared there was a newborn or a baby. I'm not sure it's quite newborn, but there was a baby. And the way things went was the baby slept with mom, nursed and, you know, would sleep. And when baby woke up might nurse right away, might not. But if the baby was up, whoever was awake because someone was always up, would take the baby and mom would just mm-hmm. keep sleeping. And mm-hmm. then it would pat if the baby wasn't asleep again, would be passed to the next waking person when baby went to sleep, passed back to mom when mom was up. And so I've often joked with families. I'm like, well, you know, one of your solutions is just invite a whole bunch of people into your house and allow them to, you know, live with you as long as everyone takes turns at night. But yet that really is a bit more of the model of where we come from as a human species, in terms of that cooperative care, that aloe care that we have provided for people that we just don't have nowadays.
1: That's right. And so in contrary to that, we're raising children in a culture that almost, um, that values independence, that values um, self-reliance. Um, and so often you will hear them say, well, parental presence is now impeding the you know, the child's developing autonomy. And so therefore the child needs to self-soothe. Therefore the child needs to, um, you know, learn not to depend on the parent for sleep. Um, And don't get me wrong. I think parenting and healthy parenting is one where the mother and father can recognize the growing need for the child's sense of autonomy. So there's a balance between exploration and comfort. And we've talked about this before. Um, and so as the infant gets older, their need for autonomy also increases, which means they do exert it in different ways from exploring and climbing and moving away from you and you know, negotiating and expressing their thoughts. All evidence of the child's growing sense of this is me, this is who I am, and this is how I'm going to express myself. I'm not entirely sure that can be readily applicable to an infant who still can't tell themselves away from their parents. So saying that the parental presence is the only way to, um, or just, or saying that the parental presence is getting in the way of the child's developing sense of autonomy, it really needs to be looked at quite closely. Because on the flip side, if you look at cultures around the world. That's not happening. So are we then suggesting that cultures that meet those child's needs are somehow interfering with their sense of autonomy? I don't think so. Related to that then, there's also the notion that if the parental presence is, um, you know, the parent offers their presence at night, then the child won't consolidate their sleep. And again, that needs to be looked at closely because if you flip that and go for parents that choose to co-sleep, are we suggesting that the children don't consolidate their sleep ever, which means there's cultures around the world with adults that still require their parents to settle themselves. Like, I don't understand this. It really needs a very, very close look. Now, of course, I need presence to sleep, right? I'm coming from a co-sleeping culture. But it's not my mom and dad, it's my husband. It's my partner. It'll be, a, you know, it'll be a friend who I know is around. Not that I want to sleep with my friend, but you know what I mean. We are born to be regulated and co-regulated. And so as we do sleep better when we have a presence. Why should that be different for babies? And so I really think the research has focused so much on this sense of autonomy and how parents can support this sense of autonomy. But we've really gone off track a bit by saying parental presence is the only thing that gets in the way of that. And withdrawing parental presence is the only way we can teach our child to consolidate sleep.
0: Thank you. Cause that's so much. And we'll talk about co-sleeping a bit more as yeah. ways to go, but it, it's so true to really think about what we're being told. And that kind of leads to, you know, the next thing that I really want to talk about, which is this idea of what we need to parent effectively and how culturally biased it is because, you know, I having worked with families for many years now I hear the idea all the time, but I need eight hours to parent effectively. I need to have time with my partner or things are going, you know, in the evening by ourselves to do whatever, or things are are going to go wrong. I don't know. Is the house going to explode? I'm not sure what's going to happen. But we've been fed so many stories about what it is that makes a successful parent. And so many of those things hinge upon us having babies that are independent, that we somehow our value as a parent only goes so far as we're able to make our children independent as early as possible. And after that, we don't have much value. And I would argue, and I would love your take on this, but I would argue that, I'll get into the actual specifics with you in a minute, but I would argue that so much of that comes from a patriarchal culture that simply doesn't value care. The idea that you could offer something valuable by being responsive is antithetical to how our culture works. I agree. You know, patriarchy,
1: capitalism, um, you know, whatever it is, where being dependent is seen as needy, that becomes a problem because babies are born dependent and they're dependent on their parent to meet their needs.
0: So they are needy. What's that a bad thing? So can you clarify for people, because I hear it all the time and I the terminology gets muddled i think in our culture we talk needy is a great word um codependent is another one we throw around as if it's a bad thing and those often get used with respect to babies to the to the infant parent infant mother infant father infant parent dyad um i like the term interdependent a bit more um a lot more to be fair Can you just clarify those terminologies for people from a clinical lens of, you know, because I think people do go back to, no, 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 I've heard codependence is a bad thing in from a psychological perspective or being too needy is a bad thing. And so, I mean, we can debate the whole issue of some things that are bad for adults aren't bad for kids. If my husband required me as a fully capable adult, Mm -hmm. not someone who has an issue to feed him every meal. I might get a little resentful that might not work for our relationship. If he needed me to though, I would, and I would not resent it because there would be the offering. So I think this distinction is crucially important. So from a clinical perspective, can you help us out? I can try. Um,
1: I think the codependence dependence is the term we often use and it's associated with more severe psychopathology. So, um, <clears throat> The notion that two healthy autonomous adults okay, rely quite pathologically, I think, on each other to meet their needs um, can be seen without exerting their autonomy uh, in basic care and decision making and just the way they are in the world. And often you will see that in um again in quite severe psychopathology where The relationship isn't healthy, for the lack of a better word. I don't think that applies to children. I don't think that applies to a parent-child diet. Now, and certainly not a baby, because babies aren't capable of meeting their own needs. Children aren't capable of meeting their own needs. They are born to depend on us, to meet their needs. That cannot be codependent. That is just, I am completely dependent, I think. You know I mean? (laughs) And that isn't a bad thing. Um, I often use the analogy, and I may have said this before, it's like you cannot make a child walk earlier than they're ready to. And I think the same applies to child development. You cannot make them self-dependent earlier than they're ready to. Now, what the parent is doing with the child, that... Six months and 12 months and one year is going to look very different to what the same parent does with the child at 20. Now at 20 they're still wanting to close me you know I've had friends and you know anecdotally go but when I go back and visit my mum you know we're living in different countries, I do like to share a bed with her once in a while. It's it's very comforting, and that to, to me, that does, that's not a codependent relationship because they're surviving without the parent in a different country for such a long time. You see what I mean? They're able to separate. They're able to function. They're able to go out there and contribute to society, but then they go back and seek this beautiful comfort-seeking. You know, um, but I want to. It was just that one night, and we talked all night, and we cuddled each other. It was like we, I was a child again. It's beautiful when I hear that. Now, of course, it can be a shock to some people to go, but you're 20 something years old. Why do you want to sleep in your mom's bed, you know? But culturally it's acceptable, it's
0: Uh, okay. I, um, my daughter loves the movie uh, 13 Going on 30 with (laughs) Jennifer Gardner. Have you seen, I don't know if you've seen it, but that scene when and I'm sorry if you haven't seen it and you want to see it and you don't want to give away, you can tune out for the next two minutes. Um, (laughs) But she, when she goes home at that certain point as the 30 year old and hops into bed with her mom and they wake up co-sleeping, my daughter's always like, Oh, Oh, I love that. That's so nice. That I can do that when I'm older and I can come back and sleep with you. And I think I, you know, I just want to reiterate what you were just saying is that I don't think there's a, Codependency when, you know, seeking comfort. Cause I think even the word seeking comfort from that experience is gets people, I don't know, somehow I think it gets people's backs up because, oh, well, if you have to do that to seek comfort. So maybe it's not even seeking comfort, maybe it's just enjoying comfort, enjoying that trip. I get a trip down memory lane when I watch shows and movies I watched as a kid. It Mm -hmm. makes me feel good. I get to go back and, oh, I remember loving this. This is so wonderful. I'm not going to say that's a bad thing. I'm not codependent on these movies or shows to feel (laughs) good. (laughs) You know, I mean, if you... (laughs) terminator away from me I might be really sad for a while but you know what I'm gonna survive I'm not gonna be you know lost to the world but I'd cry but that's you know a different thing but having that relationship you know I feel like we we look at that as we want that strong relationship between a parent and child when it's why it's supposed to be so devastating when you lose a parent is that you're supposed to have that relationship if kids grew up and we're like eh my mom died. Oh, well, going on. Yeah. We would think that there was something severely wrong with that relationship.
1: And usually when you don't have that sort of an attachment, there is something, you know, um, something that's amiss. Um Because we, I don't think if as human beings, if you're in a relationship with anyone, how briefly or, you know, um, how deeply potential loss can trigger sadness um loss triggers sadness and so while we miss their presence we also delight in their presence and i think that's what we're talking to when we're saying when we go back we want to do all these little things you know you can come back and um you can still come in my bed and that'll be completely okay you know (laughs) because i know you're not relying on me every single night to do it But as a baby, you may have, and that's okay. But telling my child that, or telling any child that at that age, it's not okay because I don't want you to continue to rely on me is like saying I'm going to get you to start walking as soon as you're born because, you know, one day you're going to have to drive. Like, really? Uh, No.
0: Well, it's also like saying as soon as they can do anything, okay, I'm putting you into the workforce, or you better start yeah. paying your taxes because <laughs> you know at some you point you're going to need to. Do this. I can't cover it forever. Mm-hmm. It's that's it's just not logical. Like growth, and I think this is what we forget is child growth is growth. It's development. It's about change. That is the the crux of it. So we have to be able to accept that they come from a different place than they end up and we have to respect that place in order to facilitate that growth to where we want them to end up.
1: Absolutely. And when you think about sleep, I think if nothing is more... You know, I think we have moved away from um, parent co-regulation in terms of expressing emotions. So, you know, a few years ago, um, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, when we looked at how parents dealt with tantrums, was it not the tantrum, right? We're slowly coming to realize that that's actually not helpful at all because leaving the child in a dysregulated state by withdrawing parental presence <clears throat> is doing more harm than good. That somehow hasn't crossed over to the sleep arena, and I don't understand why.
0: Well, I think this gets back to what I you know was going to get to a bit before but those specifics about what parents are told they're supposed to have. Because so like I'm going to start with the first one. There there's two that I really hear. And one is that parents need 8 hours straight a night. If you don't have it, you won't function, you can't cope, your sleep, you know, that is what's so important. And I don't want to dismiss that there aren't people who have conditions health issues, et cetera, that require that. But, you know, first off, I think we have to acknowledge that the bit of research we have looking at maternal sleep over comparing maternal sleep to a, and I I use maternal sleep because most of the research is on mothers. It's not about, Mm. I'm ignoring dads. They just, research has ignored dads. So it's not, (laughs) that's that's a whole other part. It's a whole other question, but I can't speak to it because I don't know how generalizable it is. But maternal sleep is qualitatively different from non-maternal sleep. So I do know the bits of studies that look at this. We see that, you know, there's kind of disruptions, these shorter sleep cycles. For a while, I, you know, had read that moms actually have shorter sleep cycles than they do when they're not in that young, newborn, kind of toddler, first 18 months kind of stage because their babies aren't. So it's not efficient. It's not helpful to have to require an hour and a half if you are with an infant who say can only go 45 minutes. Mm. And that would be detrimental. So we do see changes in this. And so the first question becomes, you know, how much sleep do we need to function? And sometimes that's, I think, just getting parents to understand if you think you need more, it feels worse when you don't have it. When you set it, right? Like, I don't know about you, but I know that if I don't set an expectation as to how much I need to sleep, I kind of take what I get. And I will go to an example here where I had chronic, I have chronic pain, but for a while, but I had a really bad period of sleep after a car accident and you know, it felt awful, but I kind of would get through the day and I didn't really think too much about it. And then for a period, I, I had a tracker, one of those like the Fitbit watches that mm-hmm. tells you how much you sleep. And I set it to the like, you know, be as easy going on movement as possible because I have kids in bed. So don't think. Mm-hmm. And it came out that my average sleep was about four hours a night. And a good night when I felt great was five hours. And when I felt really dead, it was around three hours. And I felt so much worse every day. Just the knowledge that that was what it was. Because in my mind, I'm like, I'm in bed for eight hours, nine hours. But it was like, oh, that's it. And it felt horrible. And I actually ditched it. I'm like, I won't use it at night. I can't. That Like is not helpful for me because mentally, I'm feeling worse about the sleep I'm getting. And I think that has such a huge impact. Like mentally, how we feel about our sleep affects how we respond during the day.
1: Exactly, and I think when you look at, you know, changes in um, sleep, anecdotally, and through, you know, experience with clients now, often the sleep disturbances will start in pregnancy. And that often alerts me to the fact that nature is also preparing you for the cycle of disruption. Um, And often I will, you know, when, when clients say that to me, I smile going, hmm you know what's going to come (laughs) you know but (laughs) um and i i think and very often they take it in their strides i've never heard a mum who is expecting say i'm worried about my sleep but the minute the baby is in they go i'm not getting enough sleep and i'm like but you've said this to me from the time you're like." six months, maybe even earlier. I've heard you say this to me. How come it wasn't a problem then, but it's a problem now? And I think the messaging around um how much you should be sleeping, how much your baby should be sleeping. Um, And the fact that mom's probably really tired, you know, the parent is tired, whether you like it or not. And so when the messaging overlays all of these, you know, am I doing something wrong? Is my baby not sleeping? I should be sleeping more. My baby should be sleeping more. Just the dissonance and all of that starts to make you feel much worse about what is actually quite, typical what can be quite typical now and we've talked about this before there are instances where it can where sleep disruption needs to be looked at closely and chronic sleep disruption needs to be looked at closely but tip for both mom and the baby but even dad and the baby because it can affect the whole family Um, but for the most part eight hours is not
0: it Exactly. It's not it. And you know, I actually love that you brought up that story about prenatally and postnatally. And the devil's advocate would probably say, Oh, but once there's a baby, you need more energy, because you've got to do so much more. Um, I'm going to counter that. And I would love to hear your counter with the fact that newborns actually don't do a whole lot. They're not climbing into it's not like your toddler who's about to burn down the house or emptying the uh, the cupboards every five minutes or, you know, grabbing the dog's tail or doing anything or running into the street, whatever it is. A newborn is quite simple. But I think. They're not, again, going back to those expectations of this independence because so many people struggle with the newborn. I try to put them down to do this. I try to put them down to do this. They're not sleeping in their crib. They're not napping down here. They don't sit in the bouncer. They don't sit on this. But they weren't designed to do that. Mm. That's not what they were supposed to do. So I think we have these daytime expectations that are also misguided and culturally defined that then bump up against those nighttime expectations that are misguided. And we end up in a cycle in which parents just feel awful all around.
1: I think in, in addition to that, there's also this, um, you know, like I said, the messaging on what's normal And how the baby who isn't sleeping or signaling or uh, cannot be put down is somehow not normal, which then for a mom, there is nothing worse uh, than being told you're failing your child. There is nothing worse than being told um, you are somehow doing or not doing something to not just, Perpetuate this problem, but you know, you're actually doing damage to your baby. And if you have your own instinct and your, um, You know, your cultural ideas of the kind of parent you want to be, being somehow told that the baby is not conforming to those ideas by not being independent, you know, by being this dependent, by wanting to be held all the time, by waking up and signaling. It causes a lot of of dissonance in the parents because they want to do the good thing by the child. But they also sort of somehow having to now do things um, that don't go or don't align with their instinct. And so sleep training then is the only solution on offer that yes, you need to now get eight hours of sleep. Now, if you're not doing that, you're not able to function properly. Your baby um, is somehow damaged because they're not willing to separate from you, which means the only way you can get your needs met um, and make the baby independent is by withdrawing your presence. Um, and that doesn't align with everyone. And that can actually sometimes
0: make things worse. And I think it's important to note that a lot of, although that we always hear the stories of families that say it worked wonderfully for them to do that, I would say there's an equal number of stories I've heard at least where it, as you said, it didn't solve the problem. It made everything worse and it made them feel worse. Be, it made them feel worse because it didn't align with those values or it just didn't work. I mean, their babies remained highly distressed looking for that comfort, and that was a problem.
1: Can we change the word of seeking comfort to co regulation? Because, you know, we're saying that, and I think there's nothing wrong in seeking comfort, but somehow that's become a bad, bad thing. So let's just, and I don't know why, I honestly don't know why, but I think we're supposed to, to, to be independent.
0: That's why oh, we're yeah, supposed to be independent. Cool. We don't need comfort from other people. We're supposed to do it ourselves, including when we're young and can't even walk or feed ourselves or go to the bathroom or do anything like that.
1: I mean, if you could call it young, it's like, I can't even tell myself from my parent. Like you think a six month old is just about, just about separating psychologically from the parent. And so when you, if you think about the worry and anxiety that the six-month-old is going to be put under because they're going, hey, hang on, you mean you're separate from me? You mean you're not me? Oh, my gosh. And then we're saying, no, you can't come and seek comfort from me. You, Or <laughs> you can do it in the day, no problem. Just at night, you can't. Which I'm going, well, the attachment system doesn't switch off overnight. So why is that a bad thing? And we need, and you know, coming back to it's not comfort-seeking, it's core regulation because I'm trying to do it. I don't have the tools to do it. Mom, dad, auntie, grandmother, you know, great childcare person who I really trust, come help me. Um, and through this repeated co regulation experiences, I will
0: one day learn to do it for myself. Exactly. Exactly. And so I think hopefully that can put some of the sleep to bed. But I want to talk, especially because of your background on attachment systems and adult attachment systems, you know, one of the other things that parents get told a lot is that they need to get their baby to sleep alone by themselves because somehow not having that is going to negatively affect the marital relationship, the parental relationship, if you're not talking about a single parent. And that is a really big one in our culture, that if you don't have time alone, uninterrupted, with your partner thats grounds for divorce?
1: Well, um, the cultures around the world that Co-Speaks tend tend to have the highest population. So clearly, they have found a way to be intimate with their partners. I'm not aware of the research in this. And I think, I think um, we are going to be setting up something to interview mums to ask, especially mums who are co-sleeping, how do they manage intimacy? What I find, you know, almost amusing is as teenagers, we didn't care about beds, right? Like, you just were really creative and found all sorts of wonderful ways to get intimate, and then something happens when you become parents and you lose that spark. and I don't think it's the co sleeping. I just think you know, other things are
0: going on. <laughs> we're just boring. That's. All. <laughs> but it's and you know, but I and I love the intimacy bit here. But I think it even goes beyond intimacy. That somehow there's this expectation that you're supposed to have this undivided nightly time with a partner that cannot that you cannot somehow connect with a partner if someone else is there and i i struggle with this one because as someone who's always had a night owl as a baby we had all our times of like sitting in the evening with our kids playing in front of us, but we would sit and chat and, you know, so I try to ponder what's going on. And and one thought I'd love to throw by you is that I do feel that some of it is parents are pressured into believing that while their child is awake, they are supposed to be giving them their undivided attention.
1: Yes.
0: Right? And, oh,
1: no. <laughs> no. Um, That's where you can practice giving the child a sense of autonomy. You know, this is where you can go, hey, here's your toys. It's okay if you want to be with me. Again, age appropriately now. <laughs> but even a baby, you know, to say, hang on for a second, I'm just going to do this. You can play, you can be on my hip while I'm doing this. You know what I mean? Like, you don't have to be staring at your children twenty-four seven. 20. That's exhausting. Um, it is
0: so exhausting. And I think that really leads, you know, to... Parental problems, if you're feeling like you have to sit with your child and be one-on-one engaged and can't engage with someone else, again, talking about these expectations about everything, that's going to be a really hard thing. You're going to feel mentally drained and you're going to feel worse than if, you know, you go out during the day, your child naps on you. You don't have to be home for structured times for sleep and everything, and you're child, when they're engaged in their own play, you're taking that time to do what you want to do. And you don't feel like you have to sit down and be staring at them the whole time. Um, I can tell you now, you're not going to miss anything hugely important. And even if you do, you'll forget about it in like, you know, a couple days, it won't really affect you that much. It's, uh, you know, your kid probably isn't gonna start. I mean, I miss my daughter's first crawling. uh, Because I was taking a shower. And she was in front of the mirror, and she never crawled. And then suddenly, like never even came close. It was like she must have been watching, and no prep, no being on your stomach trying to scoot around, nothing. And then suddenly, she went from being in the mirror in the bedroom to being in the shower with me, like and up on the <laughs> the, t- the side <laughs> of the shower. And I'm like, "What just happened?" And so, yes, I missed those cute little first. Oh, look, she's crawling. It's okay. That's fine. fine. I'm just thankful she didn't head towards the stairs. That was kind of how I viewed things as my bonus there. But it's (laughs) fine. You're not. I I think we we put so much pressure to be there for every little moment. And yet, as humans, that's not how we are. We're supposed to have time to ourselves, even with our children awake yes i i
1: agree with you and i think you're know, talking to the intimacy thing again was it helen ball's research that looked at pakistani women and said what we do uh it was Helen Ball, wasn't it yes what we do here is um culturally that the father just leaves the room for a couple of years you know and uh, does not mean they're not having sex because they can still conceive uh it just means that that's not the priority at the moment now I'm not saying that's the only way to be, but what I'm saying is when parents are able to adjust their expectations, somehow that is not that problematic
0: exactly. anymore.
1: Um, and look, you know, we've recently done some research, um, which we're not, we're still in the process of analyzing it and, you know, had a quick glance through the data and what we've asked parents, what are some sort of the limitations you feel about uh, Co sleeping, and you know what's coming out quite strongly is I miss my partner, and I do miss my partner. I miss snuggling against, my, you know, with my partner. I miss having that, you know, nightly, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's completely okay to miss that. Also, knowing it's not going to be forever,
0: and I think that's really important for partners to remember too, because I've always found I think one of the tensions that comes up in families, and this is all anecdotally from my work, although I'll be curious if if you come across any of it in yours, is this tension between a, say, co-sleeping parent who gets a lot of touch, may miss the partner as well, and then the other partner who's now really lacking touch to a greater Mm -hmm. degree. Mm. And the lack of that touch can lead to almost a pressure from one parent to the other that something has to change because this is not working for them, right? Because Mm -hmm. they are now, you think about a partner that has been put to another room and, you know, may not get touched a lot during the day because there's a baby who's on and crying and frantic and this and that, that can be really hard. And that's isolating. And as we know, that kind of Contact and touch is so crucially important to how we feel in our relationships with other people. Mm-hmm.
1: I agree, which is again and I guess the, so there's two points to this. One of it is the expectation that this is not um permanent. But on the other hand, there's things you can do uh, you know, during the day to fill each other's bucket up. Um, it doesn't have to be the entire night we need to be snuggling at this point. I've had um you know anecdotally again um uh, someone needs to research this maybe we should I don't know but <laughs> um you know but parents can but but if the child is in my bed they will never leave and I will never you know be able to snuggle my partner again and I go well yeah, no. Developmentally, that's not going to happen because your child's going to have fantasies one day about their crushes. And, you know, yes, it might be in a few years, but they will. They will leave your bed. Um and so in the interim, while the child's developing and you know setting off on their own autonomous path, what can you do to connect with yourself and your partner? What can you do to fill each other's bucket? Does it have to be that we have to be cuddle and sleep at night? No, but well, we could snuggle and watch a movie together while baby is sleeping on you. We could have a lovely dinner together while baby is sleeping on you. We could do all sorts of things. You know, we can have grandma in, we can have a good trusted babysitter in, we can have auntie in everything where you can sort of find moments to reconnect with one another.
0: I always add to that is, you know, it's usually we live in a in a culture where we're often telling people the idea of a date, the idea of time with someone is at night, that mm-hmm. it has to happen at night. And that is how we connect. And There's there's a whole lot of daytime, guys. So and I know a lot of people work during the day. So but usually not seven days a week. And the other thing is, is that young babies, young children often do better in the care of someone else earlier in the day. The happier they are, the lighter it is out, everything like that. They feel safer with others. And so when you have that that gap, that, that time where you have the space where a baby can be with someone else and they can be comforted and loved and, you know, engaged. They can go to the park, which might distract them from the fact that you're not there. They can do all these things. You can have a day date. You can go and have an, a, a day, go to lunch instead of dinner you could still go to a movie, you could come home and have sex, you can do whatever it is you want to do. Movie, whatever. What? <laughs> you might end up in jail, but you know, we'll leave that up to you. It's uh, but what do you, you know, there is that space there that's open to you to have that time. And that's, what's so important I think for people to remember is that we get constrained by our ideas of how dating and time has worked pre parenting. And I feel like we need to throw out that paradigm of how a relationship works. Once you have a child, because it's not there. And we have the lack of benefit of living in a culture where we've seen it work a lot. Um, And I, I do feel that had most of us grown up seeing relationships that had this, this flow, this acceptance, this finding time in front, you would grow up and be like, oh, but I know this is what it looks like, you know, dad might move out, but then we go and, and they have time together and I'm with grandma or the babysitter, or whoever else. And, and they go off it. That's fine. That's, that's what you do. And if that's your baseline, that becomes a whole lot easier to tap into when you have your own children exactly
1: and i think um you know when parents say that to me i often say but think about when you were teenagers i can think about think about when you first started dating you didn't wait for the night like you know any moment you got um you know you sneaked off you you um you connected you talked um waiting for mobile phones were you know um even and, and i think we lose some of that because we get into this routine of it just, you know, we have to segregate and organize and all of that. And I'm not sure, uh, and, you know, becoming a parent when it throws everything out of the window anyway, there's so much reorganization. I think it invites us to reorganize our relationship too because now we're adapting from being, a you know, a couple where there's, was no child to one child and how do we find our way back to each other again? Um, What do we need to do? How do we manage this? And in that tension, I'm not sure separating the child out of the dynamic is the best way. It has to be with the child.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, this kind of does it. We've started talking about this. How do we reconcile these things? And I want to quickly, because I want to ask about the sleep on, because we've obviously hinted at co-sleeping as being a massive way to reconcile this inherent in co-sleeping, because I hear in my head the chatter of people saying, well, I don't want to co-sleep, all the fears Mm -hmm. and everything. So I want to address briefly, what is it from your perspective, and you know, I'm going to agree with everything you say, that co-sleeping offers to meet a child's needs? Because I think that's really important. Like, we're forgetting as we get to the sleep here, we've talked about parental needs, and we've talked about co-regulation and our babies needing us. A bit. But in depth, what is it that they need here from an attachment perspective, from a social development perspective, from an emotional development perspective? And how does co-sleeping facilitate that for them?
1: Right off the bat, this is not from research, right? Because there isn't much research in this space. Um, But my... And anecdotally, from my experience, um, and also just my experience growing up in a culture where it was normal, it isn't just about sleep. It is about proximity. It is about being close to the parent. It's about knowing the parental presence is um, around should you need it. Um, I think having the child close, and I don't mean in the bed. I can, I, it can also mean a mattress in the floor. It can be the baby's cot in your room. If you're know you you're lucky to have bigger rooms here, not the case in the place I grew up with, uh, grew up in. So um, at any given time, you know, we were co-sleeping with someone. If it wasn't a parent, it was a sibling. If it wasn't a sibling, it was a grandmother. Um, and I think just that the awareness that I have a network of people around me day or night to call on when I'm worried, psychologically did instill a sense of comfort. It did instill a sense of, I can trust the world. Now, I'm not saying that that's the only way. And again, like I've said before in one of the earlier podcasts, you know, we, when work did the research, she did it in Uganda, which is, uh, primarily a co-sleeping culture, and we still found differences in attachment classification. So that's not what I'm saying. There's other things apart from co-sleeping that can lend itself to attachment. But I think having the parental presence close by can certainly make meet, meeting those needs easier for both the child and the parent. Um, we know the research on co-sleeping saying. You know, and we're sharing in particular that mums wake up more and mums are a lot more. But we also know that research, and this is the research, it says that that's adaptive in that context. Right? So while there's fears, and I I, I can already hear people say, but well, we don't want to do that, and you know, we're gonna smother our kids, there's safer ways to do it. Um not just to meet nutritional needs, but to meet psychological needs.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, that idea of knowing other people are there and the highlighting that co-sleeping and we should be clear again, and maybe we should have said it earlier. Co-sleeping is not inherently bed sharing. Co-sleeping is sharing the room. It is having a close proximity of sleep space. And that is really important. And some babies, I mean, I'll be honest. I don't think my kids would have done super well with just co-sleeping. They needed that. I must be touching you and on you. And, you know, basically (laughs) must be part of you and trying to get back in the womb every night. But that is my kids. And some children are like that. And if that's what they're looking for, you can fight it all you want. But the fact of the matter is chances are you're going to lose because their survival instincts are so much greater than our need to push independence. And when you talked about that sense of comfort, I went back to um, a a comment that I think I've probably shared before too, but from Sebastian Younger, who used the analogy of if you go camping, you wouldn't put your baby in a separate tent. You wouldn't have your baby six, 10 feet away alone in a tent out in the wild. And that is, in a sense, when we have to think about what our babies need, they are driven by these evolutionarily historical factors as to how do we survive. And that is not a, that's not a good survival plan. That is, if any culture, maybe there was a culture a while ago that did that, They're not here today and for good reason, because that's not how you make it to adulthood. And so, so often what we think of about children calling us or being needy or seeking comfort is very wise, adaptive behaviors. They are ensuring their survival. And I think that's such an important thing to keep in mind as well. I agree because I think um, if if we didn't do that, like you
1: said, we wouldn't personally have survived as a species. So I find it astounding when people say, oh, yeah, no, when we call sleeping, we're really getting in the way of the child's autonomy. I'm like, you're not just saying 70% of the world is doing it wrong. You're saying we've done it wrong from our evolution. We've got it wrong. I don't get it. Like, no, no. Um, and so it's, yeah, so it's not just nutritional. It's also, you know, psychological. Um, and it doesn't have to be right beside you in bed. head. It can be in a cot. It can be on a mattress. It can be in close proximity where they can call out and you hear you breathing. You know, you're, you smell you. Um, it has, I think, it has huge, huge advantages. And it just hasn't been documented. Not really, that I'm aware of in research, anyway. They're really
0: a lot of research yet, which is what you're working on, which is what I love. Um, there's one last thing about the reconciliation that I think we should cover, because I feel like we've done a decent job for a lot of the the questions and concerns parents might have about this tension between the two. But I do know one that comes up for me all the time is this notion of the earlier bedtime, trying to get a baby to sleep at a quote unquote, appropriate bedtime but then they don't want to go down alone they wake up every 30 minutes 20 minutes 40 minutes etc until you go to bed so then parents feel like well now I'm lying in bed from 7:30 on I'm not ready to sleep this is horrible there has to be a better way which is another reason to go towards sleep training
1: mm.
0: what are your thoughts on that first off I would love to hear your thoughts on the cultural acceptance of that early bedtime as being a a thing that we should all be doing?
1: I don't think I ever remember going to bed at 7 o'clock. Like, we were still playing, uh, you know, and we did have only school, and uh, we did need to wake up. I think we just adapted. Like, you know, of course, I wasn't awake till 11 11 at night, but, you know, and because I think my parents just trusted that my body would know what it needed, and I would knock out, and it didn't matter where. Uh, I remember sleep. My parents would be talking, you know, together, and I'd be like, "Yeah, I'm just gonna lie down here for a bit," and I'm out before I even realized it. And then one of them would have to pick me up and, you know, take me to the room. So that was that's my memories of growing up that there wasn't a consistent early bedtime. We just trusted to know that I'm tired and we would eventually take ourselves off and you know, go off to sleep, not in the parents' room because we did separate uh, eventually, um, <laughs> but not as babies. And so quite commonly growing up in my family, the babies were just the, the mums. Uh, if the mums were sitting out having a chat, then the babies just sat with the mums and fell off to sleep on the mums while they were having a chat. Um, there wasn't the notion of, I'm going to go put you in the room. And sometimes mom's arms would get hurt, you know, because they're holding a baby. And then an auntie would step in and say, can I hold? Or someone else would step in and say, can I hold? So those are the memories I have growing up. And so when I came here and, um, you know, um, and was told I had to put the baby separately, my mother-in-law was horrified. She said, you don't do that to a baby. Um, and, you know, I was blessed with one that never wanted to be attached, I mean, detached from me ever. She's fine now, but didn't want to leave me. And so it was like, well, then you just want to stay with me. So I would have her in my carrier and go about my life like, you know, she wasn't there except for she was. Um, and I think there's ways around that. Now, having said that, I have to also make it quite clear. Some children don't cannot sleep in that stimulation. They just need it to be dark, and they need it to be quiet and they need, you know. But I think once they transition to sleep,
0: They can usually stay asleep if there's proximity.
1: Their mom's ready to go off to bed.
0: I would say you did exactly what I did. I my kids would fall asleep on me, and if I was up, I'm not going to bed early. I'm going to stay up and finish my movie, albeit at a lower sound, yes. uh, and possibly with my little hands cupping their ears as we yeah. watch because they're lying yes. on me, and I'm just like I'm just going to keep that quiet for you. Uh, but we would do that. We would stay up and talk. We would do whatever it was, and then when I went to bed, just carry up. And yes, I did, especially with my son. Uh, My daughter was much better about kind of falling asleep on me, just there with stuff going on. But he needed dark to fall asleep. Like, Mm. he needed Mm. to be that lower stimuli. And I would just go into the dark for five minutes. Like, I could tell when he was ready to go out. And we'd go into the dark for five minutes. He'd nurse, fall asleep. And then I'd just walk back out with them. Lights were already dim. It's not like I'm trying to have a circus going while he's trying to sleep. And then... That would be that and we'd have our evening and then go to bed after but i also you know so i think there's there's that way around it i also really want to mention for families that you know the way we sleep is that the first part of the night as adults especially is our restorative sleep and when we really push our kids to go to bed early and a lot of that sleep training really is i'm pushing an earlier bedtime than maybe my baby needs or is biologically adaptive for them. And then if we stay up after that time, we're actually pushing out the time that they might sleep their deepest, which means we're shortening the time we get for that. And so just to put it in, you know, a numerical perspective, if you know, I insist upon putting my child to bed at 7, but I'm not going to bed till 10, you know, attached to me, my child might sleep two hours, depending on their age, maybe four, like if we look at the ages up to to toddlerhood, although usually in toddlerhood, they can handle a first stretch on their own, you know what I mean, before you join them. But in that early, say they last two hours. Well, if I've pushed a 7pm bedtime, even if I've sleep trained, I'm missing that two hour chunk If I allow my kid to stay up till they're naturally ready for sleep, and some kids are early to sleep, and that's, you know, luck of the draw, you get what you get. Um, But if you do that, then suddenly maybe your baby goes to bed at 9. And maybe you say, huh, I could go to bed at 9.30, but I've had my time, I've engaged with my partner, I've talked about stuff, I haven't spent those hours sitting on a floor staring at toys for two hours, I've done this time... You might actually get the benefit of those two hours, which is restorative and feels fantastic. I can't tell you how many families I speak to that when they get that first four hour chunk after, I I don't even want to give the number of months so so as not to scare anyone (laughs) listening in, but when they get that four hour chunk, it is, I feel like a whole new person. I feel like I'm just, I'm, I'm fine. I can survive. I'm good. This is great. And, but you You won't get that if you're really forcing that earlier bedtime.
1: And I think it comes down to this, right? Some children are ready for bed at seven, but they're also early risers and they'll be up at 536 and ready to see the world, right? Others are not. And so when we're following cue based care, which is, are you ready for sleep now? Um, And i I can see you're ready for sleep. You know you're melting down. You're getting tired. You're running. whatever it is, and the signs will change as the baby um, gets older. Um, when you're following the cues, there's less resistance. There, you know, it's a more enjoyable, quiet time because you're both sort of down-regulating now because you know the baby, the baby's ready to be down-regulated. To go to bed, you're offering your presence, which sort of facilitates that process. There's less bedtime resistance. The baby is off to sleep. A child's off to sleep. You might actually get your, uh, you know, intimate time, um, or not. Now, there's a fine window there where you know down regulation can move to overstimulation. But if that's happening, where you're really resisting you know, the child's really resisting bedtime, you start to need to reevaluate some of that. Have they woken up too early? Have they missed a nap? Have they napped too much? There's other things that can be going, you know, around which needs to be assessed rather than rigidly sticking to you know, seven p.m. bedtime.
0: This goes back to something you and I, you, we both had different analogies and I kind of forget yours, but I always said that the sleep struggle, sleep, pardon me, sleep struggles were like the canary in the coal mine. That when we have those deep resistance or the moving to something else, um, it's just a sign something else isn't working. It's not a sign that something's wrong with your child's sleep that you need to fix. It's, are you know, like you mentioned, are they not napping? Have they had a transition? Have they started something new like daycare where they're going to be kind of emotionally off for a while and struggling in that regard? There's so much that can happen That we need to keep in mind with our kids.
1: And, you know, we don't have a set bedtime every night. It can vary. And I think we need to keep that in mind that, you know, while it's not an extreme outlier, is that, you know, there is a variability and your baby will have that variability. And so trying to set up a routine is all well and good because I do think babies need structure and consistency and predictability, but not rigidity. And we need to be able to draw the line between what is predictability predictability, consistency and structure versus we rigidly are going to follow this because you know, I don't know why. But um, yeah, something exactly. to think about.
0: And I always find, just as, as a final note here, and then we'll just double check that we haven't missed anything. But as a final note, I find that a bedtime window is a better concept and it's usually like an hour of a bedtime window kind of think of you know a usual time and go half hour either way kind of accounts for i was more active today i was less active today i was i napped in the middle of the day for two hours instead of one i you know tried new foods today that might make me upsetting i started something new these are all going to affect how we sleep and just like us as adults, I don't fall asleep at the same time every night. I'm not tired at the same time every night. I have my window, but generally speaking, it varies based on what's happened on a given day.
1: 100% degree. And I think if we allowing ourselves that flexibility and you know and listening to our bodies and listening to what it is we need, then we should be training parents to be doing the same thing with
0: their children. Absolutely. So with all this said, I think, I hope it's clear. I hope we've addressed the tensions that are there. And I hope that parents feel heard that we understand the pressures. It's not that we're saying there is no pressure. You have to not count your need for sleep, not count your need for connection, not count everything. But that I think the way our culture has looked at it has been so black and white Mm -hmm. that we've lost that massive, gray, nuanced zone in which cultures around the world and for human history have found their ways of making this work. And and I know not every solution works for every family, that we have huge variability. If you have a single parent who is back at work at three weeks of age in the U.S., there's Mm -hmm. a lot more on the plate there. Mm -hmm. But I also think even in those situations, we have to be very careful not to dismiss the needs of the child. And that there are probably other ways that may be able to work with that. And that's what we need to be looking at in research, in Mm -hmm. our support for other people, in all of it. And if you are in that situation, co-sleeping may be your best friend because it can facilitate not just more sleep at times, but also that connection that might be missed during the day with your baby, if you're off at work and everything like that. All right. All right. Are there any last thoughts from you, my dear?
1: None that I can think of. I think we have covered everything.
0: Thank you for having me again. Oh, I have missed you. So I am so glad that you are back and we will have to do this much sooner than the break we've had over the last time. We
1: might have other exciting topics to talk about. I know.
0: I hope so. I believe there are. So we'll get that on the radar. But thank you so much for being here and talking about this. And again, I hope those of you listening feel at least heard in your struggles. Um, We really aren't trying to dismiss anyone's struggles. We do get it. We just want to point out that the picture, if it hasn't been clear enough from this, the picture is far from simple. It is a jigsaw puzzle with you know, a thousand pieces that we're all trying to piece together and make work for us. Thank you so much for listening. That's it for this week. I would love to hear from anyone with their stories of how they manage to balance their baby's needs with their own. As we all know, there have to be myriad ways of coping. Now tune in next week as I talk to clinical psychologist Dr. Annie Rohr, who specializes in perinatal mental health, about her own struggles with postpartum anxiety, and the struggles of families perinatally more generally. For anyone who has struggled with their mental health, or thinks they might be, you aren't alone, and hopefully this can offer some support. In the meantime, stay safe and happy parenting.